Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 201st episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is John Werns. John is the former Chief Marketing Officer for Wealth Enhancement Group, an independent REA based in Minneapolis that has nearly $20 billion of assets under management for nearly 20,000 affluent clients. What's unique about John, though, is the way he's scaled Wealth Enhancement Group's organic growth through marketing over the past decade, as the firm has grown from barely $1 billion of AUM to nearly $20 billion, attracting more than $1.5 billion of net new client assets in the past year alone, not including acquisitions. In this episode, we talk in depth about how John built the organic marketing engine at Wealth Enhancement Group, why direct mail became a foundation for the firm's growth strategy, how Wealth Enhancement Group leverages third-party data sources to enrich its client personas to better target its marketing, why the firm uses a centralized sales team to field all prospect inquiries before handing them off as leads for local advisors to close and service, and how John structures what is now a 30-person marketing team to execute across all of Wealth Enhancement Group's marketing channels. We also talk about the economics and metrics of advisor marketing, how John evaluates the lifetime value of a client to the firm and why the company will happily spend more than $5,000 to get one new client, the core marketing metrics that Wealth Enhancement Group uses to track its success, including cost per lead, cost per appointment, cost per client, and why the firm doesn't target a certain percentage of revenue to spend on marketing and sales, and instead uses a media efficiency ratio to determine which marketing programs are worth sustaining or not. And be certain to listen to the end, where John shares how Wealth Enhancement Group's marketing success has led to a unique acquisition strategy to accompany it, targeting firms that in metropolitan areas that have enough depth to deploy their marketing strategies in that new market. How a growth-based acquisition strategy can result in cost synergies with the merger but avoid any layoffs in the acquired firm. And why John sees digital marketing, from SEO to social media advertising, paid search to retargeting, and more, as the next great frontier of scalable advisor marketing. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with John Worms. Welcome, John Werns, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Michael. I'm really excited about the discussion today, talking about advisor marketing. You know, we we have these kind of like rules of thumb and sayings in the industry. Like, uh, advisory firms grow through referrals. The best way to grow is through referrals. If your firm is not growing enough, you just need to learn to ask for referrals more often. And I'll admit, like I've I have always had a trouble with this that you just you look at any industry benchmarking study and it's pretty consistent. The average advisory firm spends maybe 2% of revenue on marketing. And if you drill down, usually the 2% of revenue is like a client appreciation event, which is actually mostly for your existing clients and not even really that marketing-y, except maybe you like bring a rich friend along as a potential referral. We basically spend no money on marketing. And I've always looked at this and said, like, is that because it's not a good deal to spend money on marketing because referrals is a best practice and you don't need to spend a lot in referrals to get it? Or is it just that 
because the industry basically spends nothing on marketing, of course, our number one growth channel is referrals because there's essentially nothing left if you don't spend any money on marketing. And and I know you live in a world, in a firm that spends a lot of money on marketing and has driven a lot of growth from it. And like, I'm just, I'm excited to talk today about what happens when you start flipping this equation around and, and actually think about spending like very significant amounts of money on marketing and the kind of ROI that you can get when you're actually willing to invest into and spend significant amounts of money on marketing to grow a firm. I mean, it is an age-old puzzle in our in our business. And one of the reasons as a marketer I've loved being in financial services is I do think marketing is under-leveraged. And it seems like when really when marketing is really well done, people are blown away, maybe even more than other industries. So for that reason, marketers and financial services, if you can get in the right situation and get in a situation where the firm understands and is willing to invest, I, I'd argue it's one of the best industries to be a part of. So I, I feel like you just put together like that. That is the most amazing pitch for like anybody in marketing, not in financial services who are considering coming in. So like just to be clear what John said, your bar in our industry will be lower than any other industry. I mean, you look at healthcare. I mean, the marketing in healthcare is amazing. I mean, the depth of what you'll see from startup to giant firm and, you know, the, the how advanced it is. I, I mean, is another highly regulated industry as a parallel. I mean, it's just miles ahead of financial services. So yeah, I do. I've liked being in financial services because I consider myself a marketer at heart, sometimes even more than a financial services member. But yeah, it's just when you do it well in financial services, people just seem to be blown away or almost don't believe it. So talk to us a little bit then about, we're going to drill down into, into more details of kind of what you've done and, and what you built in your firm over time. But I guess at a, at a at a starting point, just as someone that, as you've said, like comes to this as sort of marketer first, financial services second, like I'm a marketer, this just happens to be the industry I've landed in. Like, how do you look at and think about marketing in the financial services industry as a as a marketer? I think uh, if you look at it really broadly, and some people ask, why do you think there's hasn't been as much dedicated or investment in marketing? I think a lot of it is structural to the industry that this was an industry comprised really of either really large firms, so somebody like a Ameriprise, and Ameriprise has a bunch of advisors, but most of them aren't really corporate employees. They're out there kind of right. as the lone wolf. And so, you know, Ameriprise might run, years ago, they ran a, a Super Bowl ad with Tommy Lee Jones on a pickup truck, right? And I remember looking at that saying, sure, I mean, they're a big firm, they need to expand the brand, and that's smart, but I mean, there's no way there was an ROI to that ad. I mean, I just, you know, I don't see it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you always had the mom and pop shops, which do great work and, and can do really good work. But I mean, where's the time for them to do investment? The industry, the landscape does seem to be changing enough that these, a lot of these fast growth companies in the middle, the RIAs are becoming big enough and scaling enough to actually have dedicated marketing, to have the investment in marketing and to see that it's possible. So I think as you're seeing that change in the landscape, marketing is becoming a larger and larger part of financial services. And that's great because really, I mean, our core financial services, if you go back to the brand, is to help people. And that is the kind of the heart of the industry. And so if we can do that more, to me, it's, it's especially in the RIA market, I just think it's really powerful. You make an interesting point there that this sort of seems to be emerging around RIAs in particular, and, and that it just, it it strikes me there are some unique things about 
RAs and the evolution of RAs relative to so much of the rest of the the, the financial services industry that on on the one hand they sort of hit the sweet spot between sort of the the two ends of the spectrum that you had just defined. You get like the mega firms of independent advisors where. Sure, you can do some broad-based branding. So maybe when the advisor has that on their business card, the consumer has seen the name before and it's kind of familiar. But when you're a central brand marketing for independent advisors who are only loosely affiliated to your platform, it's kind of hard to really drive the direct ROI from the marketing because you know you only get a piece of the advisor's business and sort of the classic like broker-dealer override model, the advisor may or may not stay with you in the long run. So the client may or may not stay and the advisor may or may not stay even if the client stays with the advisor because the advisor could go to another BD. And so it's just, it's really hard to justify the cost of centralized marketing when you've got a very decentralized independent advisor model. And at the other end of the spectrum, as you said, like there's sort of the, the mom and pop shops, the classic solo independent advisor and you know solo independent advisors overall are still sort of mathematically the majority of the advisor headcount and drive a lot of the industry but you know as you know like the one thing they don't have is a bunch of time and capital to invest into marketing so we tend to do it by our own sheer willpower go out there network meet people you know develop some referrals try to build some center of influence relationships get enough to get your critical mass of clients that you can make your income but we don't exactly have the scale and resources to invest and build up marketing. And so, you know, RAs have kind of evolved, or at least a subset of larger RAs have, has seemed to have evolved into this midpoint, like large enough to make the investments, employee-based enough for the firm to get an ROI on its marketing investments. And lo and behold, suddenly there's some mid to large size RAs that are actually starting to spend a lot of marketing. I, I, I strongly agree. And you see... It's funny, some of the firms that shoot up, they had something work. So you'll see a firm, they had a great, and I learn a lot in your podcast. I mean, they had a great seminar model. They had a great AM radio model. They had a great, right? And they kind of found these niches, which are hard to find and don't always work, right? They can be different by market and by setup and by talent. But a lot of times those singular channels will fade out and then those firms will stall. And so the ones who have done it or who have continued are the ones who believe in multi-channel, right? That, yeah, I mean, if I wake up tomorrow, I have an AM radio strategy, I'm a CMO. That doesn't inspire a lot of confidence for the next 10 years. And I love AM radio and, and Wealth Enhancement Group was actually in its early, early years in the 90s, grew on AM radio and we still do it. But if that was the, if that was a focus of my plan, I would be highly uncomfortable, but you'll still find a lot of firms out there that are still dependent on that one channel and have not done the investment to diversify across channels. Except I guess the irony to me is I also feel like I see a lot of advisors that like they go to the opposite extreme. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't want to put all my eggs in one marketing basket. So I'm going to, I'm going to have a broad multi-channel marketing strategy from the start. And it doesn't seem to necessarily carry a lot of momentum for them either. Right, that there needs to be enough specialization and investment to make any channel work. That if they were, if all the channels were easy, we'd all do them. Right, everyone would have them all working, and and they're not. They all require some operational changes, learning and investment to get them to the point where it's a positive ROI or a positive payback. So, I know the strategy that I was very lucky to walk into at Wealth Enhancement Group almost eleven years ago was this desire to say, if someone has the tool in their toolbox, we want it in ours as well. 
And so if you're hearing that someone is making something work that we're not making work, we're going to fight like heck to make sure that it's fully evaluated and that we add it to our channel. And for us, that was a lot of the key for our geographic growth. And as we touch on acquisitions later, one of the goals was you go into a new market, you don't want to have AM radio only. Maybe it's a bad AM radio market. Maybe it's already taken. Maybe there's an exclusive. You want to have 10 different channels from cutting edge digital and affiliate marketing to working with custodians and different referral programs to direct mail. If you don't have the whole basket, your confidence level can't be as high that you can continue organic growth beyond kind of your one breakthrough thing that happened in your market. And so as a marketer at a large firm, you you had sort of said, like, if you if you if we see someone that's making something work, we're going to evaluate it and figure out if we should add it to to our channels as well. So is, is that literally a part of the process for for you is is like looking out at what people are doing in advisor marketing? If you see someone that seems to be doing something that's getting some volume and scale, then you might look and say, hey, I think we're going to try that as well, except because of your size and resources. It's not like, hey, I'm going to try this for two hours on the side on Tuesdays. It's like, hey, we might hire a couple of full-time staff members and like go at this with several hundred thousand dollars of resources to start and right. scale it from there if it goes well. But we have Wealth Enhancement Group has over 30 people in their marketing departments. And then we have it segmented by different channels or focuses from digital to direct to affiliate. And so each person is responsible or manager is responsible for optimizing that area of their, their little business of direct marketing and of marketing acquisition. So if their part of the job of management is to feed them the ideas of what they're seeing, of what they're hearing, of, of what other firms are saying, so that they can go out there and go, wow, I think we're going to need to test these two things. I'm hearing or seeing enough to believe. And again, you can easily be tricked. Just because a firm is doing it doesn't mean it's working, right? That's one of the great old marketing tricks is, oh, they're on TV, so it must be working. Well, maybe. I mean, you know, there are firms that it certainly is. There are many firms who like to spend money and it might not be working. So once you vet that, absolutely, that is driving the annual planning for, should we add this test? Should we add this? And what is the highest odds of it? And at the end of the day, we're trying to run a marketing portfolio. And, you know, if something's not performing or, you know, things die, we used to do a ton of direct response newspaper. And you've seen, you know, other firms do large full-scale ads and, and we did it for, years, especially in the early 2010s, and had great results from it. And, you know, was had really built out a creative methodology and an offer methodology and a media buying methodology that it was really producing well for the firm. It just slowly faded over all those years and, and print is still used, but it's become a fraction of the marketing spend when it used to be, you know, 15, 20% of the marketing spend was was in print. And now it's it's still too, we still test it every year and look for new options, but it has not been a leading, it has not beat out the other channels in our mix. So talk to us a little bit more about the firm itself. You've, you've sort of mentioned a few times wealth, wealth Enhancement Group, but for advisors who aren't familiar, can you just talk a little bit about Wealth Enhancement Group, you know, Sky's scope, where you are, who you serve, paint a little bit of a picture for us of, of Wealth Enhancement Group. So Wealth Enhancement Group was formed in Minneapolis, Minnesota in the 1990s, mid-1990s. We had four key partners, and it's really still drives the foundation of our firm as now we're, you know, approaching and exceeding 500 people back when we were, you know, 10 people. We had one great communicator. His name is Bruce Helmer. He's still a member of the firm and is still one of our leading presenters, and he had a radio show. 
came into this radio show and just had just this wonderful way of communicating to clients. The other thing he did, which is still in our firm, which is not easy, is he made financial planning interesting. And it's much easier to say in marketing to use scare techniques like the market's going to 5,000 every one call. But he really, the firm was about education and getting people into how you can actually improve your financial situation through, through financial planning. Another partner could sell anything. Just a great salesman. He actually still has a number of people working in the firm. The third partner was a legendary financial planner. And so he was really the one who brought this kind of idea of that we can bring financial planning to the masses. It's not just, you know, for multimillionaires. It can be for the millionaire next door. It can be for people with, whether you have 20 million or 500,000, we believe that we can help you with financial planning. And then the final person was the glue. And she really knew how to run an office and how to build a business. And those four people, those four original founders still influence the business today and the structure and the dedication to marketing as its own area that one of our founders brought and the, the dedication to financial planning. So wealth enhancement's grown from that time and we're, we're just approaching 20 billion. So the official number last released was 19.4. Uh, so it's been a wild ride. I've been there for about 10 years and joined at an interesting time. So about 10 years ago, like a lot of firms, as I mentioned before, we were growing on, we had a differentiated marketing position and had this wonderful channel of AM radio shows throughout the Midwest and was doing some good seminar work and some other things. But at that time, the CEO then and still the CEO today, Jeff Deco, had a vision. And his vision was really that direct marketing and digital marketing was the future of financial services. This is during the Great Recessions. There was a good time to invest. And I had spent the last 10 years before Wealth Enhancement Group running a direct response agency out of Minneapolis and had worked from direct mail to digital to direct response radio and TV and print and all these different areas. It had worked a lot with Fisher Investments and Fisher, you know, through all of their press has done an amazing job of marketing over the years and continues to use very measured and approaches that. So I had a substantial experience with Fisher over the decade before. So when I was connected to Wealth Enhancement Group, it was just this wonderful fit of a firm that had already started this pivot into tracking and CRM and all of the areas responsible that you need to really run these measured marketing programs, but was really at the beginning of that arc and was very much motivated to create this toolbox methodology. And, and so the last 10 years, it's taken twists and turns that have, have continued to drive the fast growth and including acquisitions. And we'll touch on that, I know, a little bit as, as we prep, but the acquisitions have become... They're a great strategy to their own, but they're really about getting size in the market so that you can drive organic marketing on top of it. So in other words, if you're going to open a de novo office in, in Kentucky, in Louisville, it's hard. It's, you know, you're starting from scratch. You're about client one, client two, client three. It's hard to get enough scale to really invest in marketing on top of that. It's a long payback. And so we've used this amazing power of finding new talent markets to have these footholds and then been able to drop these organic programs in that have worked in all different markets across the country. Interesting. So direct mail, like we're talking literally oh, yeah. create, create some mailers, get some addresses in target zip codes, send them out. Like, I, well, and I guess, uh, as you'd mentioned, you do this with Fisher Investments. I know for a lot of advisors, like you still see Fisher Investments Direct marketing, because a, a lot of us actually live in the zip codes that get <laughs> targeted because financial yep. advising is also a pretty decent income career. So we're often on the receiving end of it. But like that kind of direct 
marketing, like things that show up in my mailbox from Wealth Enhancement Group. Yeah. And that's where, as you think about, that's a great case study in direct marketing because it is really where the nerdy side of marketing shines. So if you think of, of, of how Wealth Enhancement Group has, has grown our direct marketing program, if you think of the analytics that go into the list, it's not just buying the Wall Street Journal or you know, Money Magazine or a different thing. We've gone to psychographics, demographics. And one that we've shared, and we've shared this pretty widely, is we did a full regression on all of our best customers to find all of their habits, what they do, what they drive, where they live, what they eat, what their behaviors are. And the you know enormous amount of publicly available targeting data, both offline and online, one of the things we found was that our clients index very high to be bird watchers. And you go, bird, I like, and so we don't even know, like you can have all these things. Well, they're patient, they're retired, they're in the financial planning phase of their life. You can make up all these things. And I actually don't know why, but I just know that if someone has of their million publicly available pieces of info, bird watching in our regression analysis, that part of their list says the odds that they will be a good financial planning client go way up. And so you're doing that through massive data dumps, massive analytics to figure that out. How do you, how do you know that they're bird watchers in the first place? Like, is there a field in your CRM system for bird watching? Like, I, I mean, just how do you even get to that insight in the, in the first place? You know, if you use some of the publicly available data sources, you can cross-reference everything and they can produce. I mean, it's scary what is known on all of us, right? So what are the publicly available data sources. Like, I, I don't think that's a world most of us live in as financial advisors. Yeah. So there's several that we've used and a couple are proprietary and a couple we use through our agency that I'd be happy to share. But as you go deeper on them, it is shocking, again, what you can find out. We even did a test of what kind of car most of our clients drive. And guess what? We bought the list of buyers of that car and the list worked, right? With a different overlay on it. So the major credit houses, all of the data houses will have that type of information. So, I mean, it's it's shocking what is available on all of us. And it's from what magazines you read to what websites you go to, to, I mean, it's, it's, it's in there. So I like to think of it as the good size of big data. I know sometimes big data is used for evil or mm -hmm. used without permission. And that's obviously the highly concerning side of, of big data. But big data is used by almost every major marketer to figure out who am I targeting? So I just I I'm just fascinated to understand how this works. So so like what would be one of the services that can sell me this kind of data or, or or show me this kind of data? So any of the big credit houses would have almost all of this available data. Okay, so I I'm calling up TransUnion or or Equifax or one of those and Somewhere in their in their site, there's a place that I can I can buy. You know, we know usually just know them as good old fashioned credit bureaus. Yep. But there's a there's a place that I can go in there and say I want to I want to buy marketing data on people. Absolutely. And so, like, how does that work? So I'm assuming they don't give me specific data, or maybe they do. Like, do I give them my client list, and then they they take those names and apply it against theirs or do they give me stuff about my client names or like they give me a giant database of human beings and I start running queries? Like how, yep. how does this, how does this work? So we, we've used several agencies to help us with this. We also have a lot of it in house in terms of how we can do things. Usually you're starting to figure out who am I trying to target? Who are my best clients? And so you're doing that. So we'll select a group and it can be slightly different for us by geographic region or by geography and by office and what they're targeting. So we'll then take their best clients and back through it and come through with 
bounce that off of a national and come back with, oh my gosh, this is what they do. And it will become very clear. So, I mean, years ago, this was one of the first times we did it about eight years ago. It came back that, and this has changed in the habits, but a lot of our clients drove Buick SUVs. And so if you think about eight years ago, that was a very popular kind of millionaire next door, affluent car. And so we knew that targeting that type of car, we were working on this with a lot of our people and advisors in the field, and they would then send me pictures of their clients driving Buicks all the time. Right. It was like it had this weird parallel from <laughs> there's the data. And then it would be like, oh, my gosh, I was out in the thing. I was out in the field and look at them. Oh my gosh, they're driving a Buick and they're bird watching and doing these things. So we would crunch that best that best client, come back. And then, yes, then you're out. Then you're buying the lists of names of actual names who meet this. So you would say people who have this estimated income, who have this estimated home value, but less than this estimated mortgage value, which means they should have investable assets, then have all of these behavioral characteristics that we've refined over years and years and years of testing. And by that, I I joked, I have a friend who works for Ed Jones and he said, I go knock on doors all day to figure that out. And we said, yeah, we use data to figure it out, to figure out which of the 10 houses on the street in a good zip, there's still only one house you probably want that you want to be a financial planning client. And our goal is figure out who that is and only spend money to work on them for acquisition versus the other nine households where They might live next door, but that guy's in debt and he's got three boats and four cars and his house looks beautiful, but he's not going to, you know, he doesn't have the savings to be someone who's going to work on financial. He probably needs debt help, not financial planning. So I want to make sure I understand kind of this process and what it looks like. So I, I go into my advisor CRM. I create some segment for my my top clients, my A clients, like this group that I want to replicate, which I know a lot of some of us have done already. And, you know, you're like make your list of your 20 best clients and then start writing down their characteristics. So, so you're going to start with this list. Yours might be larger because I don't even know like how many, uh, obviously you're bigger now, but like how many clients does WEG have? I mean, I think you said almost $20 billion, but how, like how many clients is that? I'll have to pull the updated number because it's been increasing so quickly. Okay. But I mean, obviously tens of thousands, tens okay. of thousands of clients. Uh, okay. So you know, we, we might do it with like our top, 10 or 20 clients, you might do it with like your top thousand or 2000. Yeah. So, so you pull like a list of, okay, here are 2000 of our really good clients. Like these are our a clients, you know, they're, they're good fits. We like working with them. They value our services. They pay us good fees, all those sort of general criteria. And so rather than like going back to your advisors and saying, okay, now, you know, make a list of like their car and their hobbies and such, you're going to take that list of names. You call up Equifax or one of the firms yep. and and say, hey, I got a list of 2,000 names. I need to send it through your filters and then have you tell me what you know about them in some kind of report where I can see the patterns. Exactly. Yep. It helped me, it helped me create a model of understanding these people. Okay. And so out of curiosity, like what is that cost or what's the neighborhood? Like I just have no framing. Like is that a is that like a $2,000 project? Is that like a $50,000 project? Like what is it? What does it cost to send your name of dozens or hundreds or a few thousand names into Equifax, TransUnion or one of them and have them come back with with their list of here's what we've learned about your people? Yeah, I mean, it's 10,000 and definitely goes higher. And the interpretation of that data is obviously the trickiest part. But I would say just to rough it out between 10 and 25,000 for a full analysis of a of a client group. Okay. So, so you send that off, you get it back. 
they take all the slightly creepy levels of marketing data that the marketing companies actually know about us because of how this stuff gets aggregated. And you start seeing patterns. 37% of our people drive Buick SUVs. 27% of them are bird watchers, which is a big deal because only whatever 2% of the general population are bird watchers. Like we have this uniquely high pull to them. So, so you start creating a list of characteristics of what your ideal clients most likely look like. So certain income levels, certain home values, because we can get that from public information. Then these bureaus also have the overlay data, bird watcher, drives Buick SUV, whatever it is. And so now what happens, like you go back to them and say, okay, now I want you to give, instead of me giving you my client list so you can run your analysis, now I want you to give me a list of mailing addresses I can send a mailer to based on a list of characteristics I'm going to give you, some of which are financial targeting, some of which are zip code targeting, and some of which are these demographic or psychographic other variables that I found, like bird watchers who like Buick SUVs. You nailed it. And that's where the they joke, in a lot of marketing, there is a secret formula, right? You spend a lot of money figuring that out and then refining it, right? So the data tells you one thing, and then you go out and test it. And you're actually in the market running list A versus list B versus list C versus list D. And then you're still sometimes surprised that, wow, list D1, I didn't think that was the quite the targeting, but behaviorally, this is actually what's working. So it provides a very close approximation of what's going to work. And then you go test it in the real world through A-B testing. What's been great about it is what we found for our profile of these clients is they exist in every market. Now, they might exist in different numbers in every market, but there's plenty of them in every market. And what that means is in San Francisco, we might be targeting 10% of the population, wherein in Minneapolis, it might be 22. But 10% of a big city is still a huge number to go target. So once you start to ratchet these in, you can find them in every market and replicate that success. And there might be subtle tweaks that occur by geography. But these people still have the same behaviors, the same psychographics, the same things, no matter where they live. And so the idea of this is because at the end of the day, like the next step is like I get a list of mailing addresses and I'm assuming like this is what another many thousand or tens of thousands of dollars now to go to them and say like, okay, I want I want everybody in these seven zip codes around Minneapolis who have a home value of at least X, a mortgage of less than Y, who rank highly on bird watching or Buick SUVs. They're going to give you back 8,172 names or and, and mailing addresses or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And you're now stroking another check for however many thousands of dollars to get that mailing list. Yeah. And so we usually, and it's pretty standards, you'll be using a direct mail house or a mail partner, direct mail partner to do a lot of that. The analysis can be done either by yourself or with a partner. And then the mailing is definitely work through people that have expertise in this. Because as you get into nerdy direct mail, you have to dedupe the list and you have to make sure your clients aren't on it. And you have to make sure, you know, do you want prospects on it or not? And, oh, did I mail to them two months ago? So I don't want to mail to them again. So when you're doing the, the mailing, you're definitely getting into some pretty big analytics to make sure that you're doing it in a way in which it's well received in the market and you're certainly not, you know, we all fight so hard to get clients. The last thing you want to right. do is make them upset. Right. And, and, and I guess ultimately the reason why we do all of this refining is because I pay a direct mail partner X dollars per address. That's yep. like, that's sort of the core unit. So 
it's not necessarily that I'm trying to, you know, only get people who are bird watching Buick drivers. It's that if one out of every 10 bird watching Buick drivers actually does business with me and only one out of a thousand random mailing addresses does things with me, why pay for thousands of mailing addresses that are having almost no likelihood of working with me except like a random shotgun approach? when I could just target the bird-watching Buick SUV drivers that have an astronomically higher conversion rate with me because we figured out these happen to be this, the, the traits that work, which just means I might get 5x or 10x or 20x the ROI on my marketing spend because I got hyper-targeted to the people that actually seem to fit what I do. Exactly. And in that way, not only are you defining a positive acquisition cost through that testing and through the rigor that can occur with this, the other part of it is you're defining the client. So one of the things I've seen with firms that do a ton of referrals is you will often get, and we love referrals, sorry, referrals are great. They're the most efficient. Everyone should do them. We, we support them. This is an and, not an or conversation in terms of marketing and referrals. But when you get referrals, sometimes they're not always of the same ilk of what you already have, and they might have different needs and they can stretch your firm. One of the things about very targeted marketing is we are seeking the client that will enjoy, appreciate, and stay with our firm. And that we know what they want, that we're using messaging around tax planning, around estate planning, around investments. But it's very targeted messaging so that we're getting someone to raise their hand who five years later, the advisor is going to say, oh, I love them as a client. I, love, I mean, they fit our model. They fit what we do. And if we can target it well enough in the front, end, it's a challenge, trust me, it's not a it making it sound much easier than it is in terms of getting, but you're trying to get people through the funnel that exactly want your value proposition. And that leads to a more efficient business and happier advisors. And that's because like bird watching Buick drivers really like sophisticated tax planning, or is this just because you're targeting bird watching Buick drivers, and when you send your tax message, your your tax based marketing to them, because that happens to be the message that you use. Like, if they're bird watching Buick drivers and they like our tax messaging, the combination of the two probably means they're going to stick. Yep, that's exactly it. So there's multiple follow up points, but it starts at the beginning with identifying someone who has the characteristics of someone who will fit exactly what our firm offers. Because if you get in our world, you know, as a financial planning firm, if you get a bunch of quote unquote, do it yourselfers to raise their hand, it gets to be a really ugly pipeline, right? So now you have all these people coming in saying, can you time the market? Can you beat the market? Maybe. I mean, that's not, you know, we're, we're not market timers. We think we have a great and really powerful investment strategy. But if you, if that's what we generate all day, both through a list and through how you nurture that list, yeah, you're just going to get a messy pipeline and, and you're going to get upset advisors and and not get the ROI you hope for. So, you know, I know there are some direct mail firms in our industry that do like, you know, local direct mail targeting for advisors to run your marketing system. Like, are you working with firms like that or are you working with firms outside the industry because you're sort of coming at direct mail marketing in a very different way when you've said, we took our big list and we put it through Equifax and they gave us all this criteria and we've winnowed it down and you know, we're, we're layering on all of these different demographic and psychographic factors that honestly, I don't know if the average financial advisor direct marketing firm uses. Like, who, who do you use or what kinds of firms live in this world that do this kind of work that you're talking about? We started within the kind of the firms within the industry. And as we grew, we grew to what I'll call more just national firms or, or some of the, the big power direct mail houses. But 
it's one of the reasons to work with someone who understands our industry of some of the direct mail firms is they can jump you ahead in this strategy. They, they may already, even by talking to someone, be able to say, oh, I know who you're targeting. It's X, Y, and Z. And you see this in the seminar marketing and you see this in direct mail and digital where, you know, the profile that a lot of the firms are chasing out there, we're all pretty similar, right? I mean, especially we, we think we're different, but from the outside looking in, I would say how different really are the RIAs? And, and we're, we're quite different, but to a consumer, I think we're pretty similar. And so can you give me examples of just like who are the direct mail firms that do this? I think for for most of this never done this, we wouldn't even know where to where to start or where to look. Sure, I'd be happy to share some in a link as well. We've used to used a firm named Paradise Matera and Paradise Matera is is one of the leading agencies in the country. They've been a great partner for us. For scale, they're probably not as good or or not a fit for some of the smaller firms. You have they're quite large client base across them. They work with a lot of nonprofits, a lot of direct marketers, a lot of other firms. So, but there are a number of firms within the market. I know that specialize with it, especially within, again, where I see some of the sophistications with some of the seminar firms out there. And so I've seen a few out there that are doing a nice job on the seminar side. So you get this list, you do this mailing, you're now like, I don't know, like another five or 10 or $20,000 in to just queue up this hyper-targeted mailing that you send out. What comes next? I mean, like, are you, is this a direct mail? Like, hey, I just thought you might want to give us all of your life savings. We'd be happy to manage it for you. Uh, Is this like, I mean, like, are you soliciting them directly off the direct mail? Is this direct mail to come to a seminar we're doing or check out a webinar we're doing or uh, we're hosting this other event you should come to? Like, what is the, what do you actually do like what is the direct mail to ask them to do that's getting them to become your clients? So we're always testing different offers, but I can bucket them into a couple segments that we use often. So one is free information, and that's really when we're doing it to a cold list or a new list. So you know, free guide marketing still works, and we try to do high quality educational guides, tax planning, estate planning, investment management, all the different areas that we may work in. So. The response for that can often be call for your free guide and if you're interested to talk to an advisor. And that gives us a path where if some people respond and they say, you know, I'm really interested in the guide, but I'm not ready to meet with anyone yet. Obviously, we have many nurturing channels that will work to make sure that we stay engaged so that when the time is right, hopefully they think of us. Some people are ready to jump right through the funnel and, and go to a meeting. And then we have an inside sales team that is really working all of the leads and we're scoring these leads as they come in for likelihood to be good clients. We actually score the direct mail list. And then when the leads come in, we're rescoring them again to another degree to say, how likely are they to become a client? And that can be what activities have they taken in our database? How much do we know about them externally? Have they responded to multiple areas? And you learn all kinds of interesting things and they will then be scored. So our inside sales team knows, oh, this is a web lead that downloaded a guide two years ago. That's not very interesting. Or, oh, this is someone that has responded to three different tax pieces, clearly has a need and has expressed interest on our website three different times. This is actually going to elevate to me giving them an outbound phone call to follow up on their inquiry. And so at that point, it's really about their job is qualifying and scheduling them to the final step of, does it make sense to come meet with an advisor? And what are you using to do all this scoring and tracking? Is this a CRM system? Is this specialized marketing software? Yep. So we've switched all of our background into Salesforce and Marketing Cloud. And we've gone through, I think like many firms, 
kind of a, a litany of different areas. And I can say when I joined nine years ago, it was a whiteboard and it right in an Excel document that we looked at every week. I was say, I hope yeah. I hope it started in Excel. We we, we oh, have to look at our spreadsheets. And I still do love Excel. I'm I'm probably dating myself a little bit, but I mean, so and then it switched into a homegrown database, and then it switched into Microsoft CRM, and then it switched into HubSpot, and then it switched into Salesforce and 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 Salesforce's version of their CRM, which is Marketing Cloud. And it's been a journey through that whole process and you know, good implementations, long Im- implementations, it's, you know, through that. But I will say that we are definitely, as, as a firm, a, a large fan of what Salesforce has provided us. And, you know, it's kind of like when you see the Salesforce demo and you see the exact graph of data you always wanted to know. And once you get your data aligned, which Salesforce, one of the things it forces you to do is they have a great data architecture. And you actually get that graph for the first time where you say, you know, I want to figure out X, Y, and Z, and you can do it yourself. It goes much quicker. So we we've definitely evolved from some external tools and vendors to to trying to bring most of that in house through Salesforce. And is that the like the the way it can pull in all this different data is the the thing that drove you to finish there? Yes, and we may bounce certain things out to other data sources or partners, but then it always lives in Salesforce. So that's really our. I mean, everyone says their CRM is their hub, but I mean, it's our, it is for marketing on the front and very much our hub of how we know. And so it, it's great because not only when, when an advisor takes a meeting and there's an appointment set, they can obviously see what has transpired in terms of conversations and scheduling and confirmations in those areas, but they also have access for the curious advisor to see what, how we marketed to them. You know, and not all advisors want to go to say, oh, they sent them three direct mail pieces, two were on tax, one was on estate planning. They responded to those. They did not respond to this one. So I'm going to shape my conversation this way. But many advisors want to see that level of data and understand what it took to get them to agree to come in for an appointment with us. And the reason you moved away even from platforms like HubSpot is just because HubSpot was HubSpot and the rest and and your client interactions were still in a CRM like Salesforce and and you wanted them all in one is like, is that what pulled you a little bit? Yes. Away. And I would say HubSpot's a great tool. I would highly recommend HubSpot to people, especially if you're, you're dipping your toe into marketing automation and nurturing and managing that. I, I think HubSpot is a wonderful tool. It's actually still one of the blogs I still read. I've been a addicted HubSpot reader for 10 years. They do. Of course, I know they're marketing as a marketer. They're also marketing to us, but it's, it's just great content. So HubSpot was great. We just outgrew it. And with the size of our business, the number of different journeys and paths and product lines and and business models that we needed something that was just a little bit broader and that could handle a higher volume of different nurturing segments, paths. And so that made us make the decision in 2017 to switch all the way to Salesforce and Marketing Cloud. But there's, I mean, Marketo is still a great marketing automation platform that's larger. So there's a number a number of competitive platforms in that area. Yeah, I was going to say like why why marketing cloud and not some of the other tools that that integrate to them. I guess Marketo's out there part I'm trying to remember Pardot's out there like was it Exact Target that became marketing cloud or it was actually Exact Target and Pardot our marketing cloud now. So okay, that that turned into marketing cloud. Exact okay. Exact Target was the B to C, and Pardot was the B to B. And when we think of marketing financial services, because I mean you're not selling a widget, you're not selling you know LASIK, you're not selling a one time thing. 
you know, I've seen a lot of the the marketing that's done when you're nurturing someone, you know, for a high value, high long-term client relationship, it's actually has a lot of the characteristics of a B2B sale, right? That it's not just blast away and hope someone responds. It's about nurturing and understanding and developing. And so we've skewed a little of our CRM towards, you know, the higher value, which is typically B2B. And that's where Marketing Cloud split because they had, they really were incorporating both. And so at the time we made the decision, we've been very happy with the decision. It was, it gave us the bandwidth to really bounce between what would be a typical B2C or a B2B solution. And it's kind of where Salesforce is taking over the world. It's, gosh, they have so many options. You're not going to regret your decision because they can go left and they can go right. And I would say that's absolutely proven true to us. The integration being inside of it has been, I would say, a little bit easier. But yeah, we would we would have considered an outside. That was not the determining factor. But it certainly is wonderful once you have your data and systems, and it's something we still work on to this, you know, we'll always work on, and especially with some of the enhanced direction of where the company's going in the future, that's that's a lifelong project. So help me understand a little bit more, like the the things you drive off of these direct mail outreaches. So you said sort of one one bucket is is the free information, you know, call for your free guide, go to this website to download this thing. Like one way to you're not necessarily going to convert them to business yet, but like they show up, they have an interaction with Weg. It's you know, it's it's a it's a live human being who has responded to something you've done. You've got some opportunity to start following up with them from there. Like what else? What are the other buckets that you that you set up for? The other, I mean, so that is the main bucket. We also will do seminars and webinars that will approach both through direct mail and digitally. So pretty much everything we're talking about in direct mail also transfers to digital, any kind of digital outreach we'll do. And so seminars in person, obviously post-COVID have taken a dramatic turn, but are still a, a good tactic for us and something we still enjoy doing, especially for people further in the funnel who need a little more face-to-face. And that has been really worked well for us. And then, like many firms, have shifted heavily towards webinars even before the COVID change earlier this year and have, have if anything, accelerated that. And I know you had a, a recent podcast of someone doing wonderful Facebook marketing into webinar, and that's just a great channel as well. So there's there's just so many different ways to intersect. So what we'll test is, is it the most efficient to use direct mail to get them to raise their hand for interest or to go right for the jugular for a meeting or to invite them to an event? And depending on the ROI, we will switch the tactic of which one we're using more or less. Okay. And so talk to us a little then about how do you measure ROI and outcomes on all of this? Like, are there certain key metrics you look at along the way? Is there sort of a a master metric or target or conversion rate or something? Like, how do you measure marketing, particularly at this size and scale, where I'm imagining it's, it's, it's pretty easy to do a lot of very wasteful marketing expenditures if you don't have a, a tight lens on how you're measuring it to make sure that you're getting a good ROI. What do you measure? We measure everything, but that's, again, I grew up even before the time of all the Hansberg Group as a direct and digital marketer. So everything was results-based. Even I actually did some work in catalog marketing way back in the day where you knew on every page what product pulled, what didn't. And you would arrange the catalog in a way of which, you know, to maximize the throughput. So if you think of how we manage the funnel, every channel has a slightly different funnel. And what I'm saying by that is the cost per lead can be radically different by channel. So I've always been pained when people ask for what is your average cost per lead? Because you can have a $10 cost per lead in internet, a $100 cost per lead in direct mail, 
in a $500 cost per lead in affiliate marketing, but you might have the same cost per client. So the, the funnels all work a little differently. Some attract people way up in the funnel that need a lot of nurturing. Some are more towards the bottom, but it really starts with cost per lead. We then do cost per appointment and we have you know cancel rates, show rates, all the different areas around that. Then there's cost per client. And then the, the real measure that we use, it's, it's a summary measure, is we call it media efficiency ratio. And it's, it's really how much did I spend in media? So if I you know, had a campaign that cost $100,000, and then how much did I bring in from that campaign in terms of AUM? And that's kind of our short one. And that's where we're making a lot of the decisions of, oh, the, the media efficiency ratio currently on our digital marketing programs are X and on direct mail, it's Y. We're going to allocate more towards digital marketing because the incremental dollar is going to produce better. So we're going to rebalance our spending in this market this way. And then all of this, though, is predicated on what is the lifetime value of that customer? So for people listening, I think it is really critical to say, what is your benchmark? What do I need to say this is a winning or a losing campaign and really define that, put that stake in the sand? And it can be as simple as I need to break even in one year. So if I have a million dollar client and I'm charging a 1% management fee, then that's my, okay, now I know what my break even is or two years or three years. So we're lucky in this industry of, of financial planning to have clients that are pretty sticky. Wealth Enhancement Group's been 97% plus retention rates, 98% plus 99 for years and years and years and years because they you know do a great job as many do in this industry. So the value of that customer is gigantic if you're willing to spread it out. Now, that doesn't mean you can just roll up a wheelbarrow money and dump it down and spend it. But once you start having that return, for us, it's very easy to say, oh, I'm hitting this return, I'm willing to spend. Or I'm not hitting this return, we got to shut this thing off. And so I know you said the 2% earlier, Michael, of you know, do you spend 2% or 6%. We certainly target a percentage of revenue, but I would say when you're bottom up, it's more of a bottom up of how much can I spend at this efficiency level? And if that number is 8% of revenue, then you should do it. And if you can prove it and test it and roll it out, and if it's 10%, you should do it. And there's cash flow and all things we all manage in our business, but you know, th- it's exciting to have a bottom up. And, and if the market's tough and things aren't working and it's, you know, it's 4%, then maybe that's the number. But I think that's the right way to approach. Once you have some marketing programs, how do you understand what to spend? And I like the top down to get started, but then once you do it, once you've invested in it and, and have some baseline of results that you go, I love doing these educational seminars, or I love this digital program that I'm doing through a third-party agency, or I love this, this area, then it's really about the bottom up. Well, I think it's such a powerful point you make that all of this kind of comes back to a, a, a lifetime value of a client to the to the advisory firm that I, I, I just I'm, I'm struck that our industry tends to spend so little time and effort and 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 focus thinking about this, right? If, uh, despite how phenomenally higher retention rates are, right? If I just sort of napkin math this, a million dollar client at the proverbial one percent fee pays ten thousand dollars a year. If my firm has a ninety seven percent retention rate, mm-hmm. so we have a three percent attrition rate. A 3% attrition rate means on average, a client turns over in 30 plus years, mm-hmm. right? You know, you yep. lose one thirtieth of your clients every year. That's how you get to a 3% attrition rate. So if my million dollar client retains for an average of 30 years, 
then I end out with $300,000 of cumulative revenue that that client is going to pay over their lifetime. It may even be higher because if we're AUM and markets grow more than they spend, then that, that number may lift with markets over time. But geez, even if you start there, you're talking about $300,000 of cumulative revenue. Now, you know, we only get to earn a profit on that. Like I don't get to keep all of it. I got to do the work to service the client. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you take a called a 30% benchmark profit margin for an advisory firm, you still get down to a number of like cumulatively over their lifetime, a client may generate $90,000 of cumulative profit. Now you got to show up with awesome services for all 30 years yep. <laughs> if you want to retain them. So you, you got to do a bunch of work to that and there is some risk and you know, obviously we can get in the time value of money discounting rates that apply to this as well. But when you just think about it conceptually, like an advisory firm might generate $90,000 of profit. And if we're spending an average of 2% of revenue, means like we, we spend on average $200 to get a client that might be worth $90,000 of cumulative profits. We spend a little more than 200, but the analogy absolutely holds. Yeah. I mean, in, in practice, I think that's why advisory firms like we don't even get very much ROI on our marketing. We all, we almost only end up referral based because when you're spending an average of two hundred dollars per clients to get growth, yep. you don't you don't get very much growth because it it does usually cost you a little bit more than two hundred bucks to actually convert someone into a client. But I, like the thing that strikes me is, is sort of this like, well, why aren't we spending a drastically higher number? Because like ninety thousand dollars of lifetime client value and profits, like. Why can we only get to 2% of revenue as a spend? I think that's it. And it's getting through those hurdles to make the programs work. And it's it's no secret. That's why PE firms, I believe, are so interested in our space right now. Wealth Enhancement Group has been PE firmed for you know well over a decade for the majority of our, our life. But you're seeing it obviously flood in in many different ways. And I think it's because you know those recurring business models are extremely popular and are extremely accretive. And so it's a great space to be for those firms, both both for the firms that are for sale themselves or large enough to be considered by a private equity. And and I, I just, on a side note, I'm a huge fan of private equity. We've had three different owners in my time and they've all been extremely helpful. I know not everyone has had that exact experience, but three owners in, we've had three extremely helpful partners. But also for the, you know, driving that, that in turn drives the acquisition of firms that I think many firms are worth a lot more than they thought they were worth. And that's great. That's great for everyone involved. And so we're excited to see, I mean, valuations are up and they probably should be. I think people are just recognizing the power of the model that we all participate in. Yeah, because I, you know, when I think about it in that end, like to to set some benchmark rate, like why don't we spend $10,000 mm-hmm. to get one client, one $1 million client that will pay $10,000 a year when the lifetime client value could be $90,000. And even if you want to apply a long-term discount rate, like- you're going to come out with the number a lot bigger than 10. So it's like, well, why wouldn't you spend $10,000 to get a client? And the answer to some extent is because advisory firms, like we still have no capital constraint in the yeah. first year, the $10,000 client may pay $10,000 of revenue, but I got to do the work. And frankly, there's usually more work in year one. So I, I, I might generate little to no profit to the client in year one. And so when you're spending $10,000 to get a client that might only drop $1,000 of profit to the bottom line in year one, if you try to spend too much on marketing, like you'll be long-term profitable and short-term broke. Yep. Because it takes you years 
to actually get the ROI, even though with a 30-year average tenure, you should get a fantastic ROI, it does take you years to make your money back, which to me then speaks to now you start seeing why there's so much PE activity coming into the industry. Because if your only problem is, hey, I got these clients where I can spend $10,000 and make 90 but I don't have enough cash in the bank to to get to the break-even point. Like if there's one thing that a PE firm knows how to solve, it's like, oh, you need cash in the bank, so you turn tens into nineties. Like, right. we got you. We got this. Well, the other thing, I don't think it's any shock then that Ken Fisher did this 10, 20 years ago. I mean, he's one of the yeah. richest Americans, right? 250 Americans. Well, he understood the model and he had the pockets to fund it. Now, you know, what is what makes sense in most of us in the real world and, and certainly at Wealth Enhancement Group, you know, while it's, you know, learn, grow, do it's, it's take a step, invest, confirm, take another step, invest, con- you know, I would never say a firm should go from zero to 10 million in marketing spend. I mean, that's, you know, it's, you start with 2% and then you go, oh, that was a good year and we're feeling better about it. I'm going to go to three and then maybe three goes to five and five goes to six. You know, it's not, you right. don't want to exponentially grow. You, you need your programs to continue to work and scale and your business to work and scale. And, and you know, as you know, you know, heaven forbid you do it and it works and yep. now you actually have to service these clients, <laughs> onboard them and service them and do the work. And because if you don't do that, well, you're going to you're going to make them upset. And if you make them upset, then they're not going to stick with you. And then the whole model falls back apart again. So and we had a wonderful this is a good problem. And I wish this problem happened every day. Right. Too many leads, too much good marketing. You know, I wish, yeah. I, I, wish I told you that happened every day. It's a lot of hard work. A lot of days we we're like, why isn't it working? But we had this as we grew Chicago. We acquired one of our first acquisitions in Chicago in about 2015. And as they got on a roll of channels, they had so much, and they're so good at business development, this group was, that the office was like, oh my gosh, we're going to have to grow so much to handle it all. And so, yeah, you're creating constraints from your own growth. Now, again, that I wish that problem happened every day. That's a wonderful problem that we all wish we had. But when it happens, it's a lot of fun of like, oh, we got to turn these two things off. Because this thing is going so well, and you know, while we're adding staff and we're actually acquiring a second firm in Chicago and growing like crazy, like you can only do so much. You know, there's always step growth is the way to go. And then I like to spend marketing budget, so I say that even from a <laughs> from a point of a spender. So as you think about some of these metrics, like are there actual metrics that you try to target as as a I always see like as a rule of thumb or just like as an actual business metric of like, what is a, like, what's a good cost per client for a firm like yours? Like when you can do this with size and scale as you guys have, like, are you guys able to get clients, million dollar clients for $10,000 spends for $5,000 spends for $1,000 spends? Like, what is this? What does this actually look like in practice as you get going the way that you do? Yeah, and I can range it in certainly. And and again, I what I have to be careful is, you know, it all depends on the average size of the client. You know, if our average client is a million plus on the way in, you know, it's not 10 million, it's not a hundred thousand, right? So if you're, you know, your cost per client that you'd need to attain for a hundred for a hundred thousand client or a 10 million. And in ours through marketing and other channels can be, you know, in the one to two million range is our average. And but varies a little by market. But you know, we are trying to do and again, I hate, I mentioned earlier, I hate rolling up the cost for leads, but I'm going I'm to do some really broad strokes. So cost for leads average $100. So I'm just a really broad stroke on that. Okay. And, and so again, in some, it's much lower, some it's much higher. I, I kind of like that one. But, but if you can do a, a cost per held appointment of, you know, one to $2,000. So you're, you're in between there. And that's through a lot of the nurturing and getting those people through, depending on the program. Because cost per lead at this point is just like, yeah, 
they showed signs of life. Like, right. We got they called the number to get the guide. They went to the website to do the thing. Like when we said we're doing a webinar, they entered their email address. Yep. For the webinar, like net new name, right? Net new name. And so if you get there, so then if you're, you know, at a couple thousand and a qualified appointment who shows up, you know, with their information to see an advisor for an hour or two hours, and then you get a cost per client, you know, our close rate and is something we share pretty openly. I don't think it's that different. By the way, marketing leads are much harder to close than referral leads. And this is something as, as the 16 acquisitions wealth enhanced, we have to train them differently because they just don't know you as well, right? They don't have that, right. huge, you know, referrals are great. We love referrals. But so if your referral close rate is 70, 80%, marketing close rates are 30, 40, 50%, depending on where they go. And your closing of that, you know, 2000, you're closing 40% of them. So now all of a sudden you're at 5,000 a client. And I will say at 5,000 a client with the rough, you know, math we did, people are very happy. Long-term advisors are very happy in how they're building their books yeah. and, and things, the life is good at that number. Right. Which as you said, like uh, average client is one or $2 million. So we can yep. all do the rough math on fee schedules of, of, of what this looks like. And, and it, it adds up pretty darn well. Yeah. And so again, it, it depends. That's a really rough, but that, that would help range it in, in terms of, of how that works. And, and we set those metrics then. So we know when direct mail is performing at X and, and, and digital is performing at Y and emails at X and webinars at Z. And as you're just looking seminars at Z, you can then, you can tweak all of these different channels and, and compare them. And so now just cause I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by just your metrics around this. So you had said you also look at this as a an efficiency ratio relative to AUM, like spend relative to AUM. So like if I get a million dollar client and it costs me five thousand dollars to get them, like my my efficiency ratio is two hundred. Am I thinking about that right? Yep, we'll do a one percent. You hear numbers of one or two percent thrown out around the industry. So, I mean, if you're going to spend a million dollars in media, you're going to want to bring in a hundred million in new assets. And that would, okay. and for us, that would be a, a one. I did it the other way. So, so yeah, so you would, so you would flip it. You would yep. flip it around, but same, same thing. So, I guess actually, a like a a, a million dollar client. For $5,000 spend ends out at, at a pretty good ratio for yep. you guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, that's going to break even early in the second year, even with the way we did the back, you know, background math and it's going to work out real, really well. But yeah, so we'll have different and the media efficiency ratio may change depending on the market, depending on the investment level, but that it's just as a marketer for me. And it's, it's, there's a couple of great articles out there give me clear boundaries and give me clear goals and then I can report back. And so it's just, what's great when, you know, if you're hitting 1%, you're winning. And if you're hitting 2%, you should be nervous. And if you're hitting 5%, you, you're, what the heck are you doing with our marketing budget? Right. Okay. Cause like, cause this is a, this is a ratio where you actually want the, yeah, the in, when you calculate that way, you want it lower, you better. want it lower. Cause I'm going to divide my percentage yep. in. So if I'm, if my media efficiency ratio is 1%, then for every million I spend, I should get a hundred million of assets. Yep. My media ratio is, half a percent, then if I divide a half percent in, I'm getting $200 million for every million dollars that I spend. So I, I want my, I want my ratio to be lower. Lower means efficiency in the way we use it. So the lower the ratio, the more efficient that ratio is. And so then, so this now helps to connect back to 
what you were saying earlier, where you're not necessarily spending, trying to spend a particular percentage of revenue. It might be more like, hey, as long as this channel keeps producing at a 1% efficiency ratio, that's good enough to make our metrics move forward. We're just going to keep plowing more money into it at a 1% efficiency ratio with the caveat, like, Yep. You know, there's only so many people in the greater Minneapolis area that you can send these things to. So it's not like you can just keep doubling your marketing spend. At some point, you're just sending the same household like weekly mailers and pissing them off. Right. And so your your marketing channels potentially gets even if it's working and the math is great, you can't just always keep spending more there because at some point you saturate the channel, which is why you then have to go find new channels or new markets and gets you into now you know why WEG keeps buying firms in new metropolitan areas because now like, oh, I got a marketing campaign. We know how to execute it. It tends to do a 1% efficiency ratio, but we've hit everybody in the greater Minneapolis area. Good news. We just got a firm in Hartford. Let's see how many people we can get around Hartford. now. Exactly. And what's been great about continue to add new channels to your point is we haven't ever had a decreasing actually growth rate in Minneapolis. So even though that's Minnesota's our home market and where we've been for 20 years, it still continues to grow at an accelerating rate because we've been able to add new channels and keep the ones, you know, the majority of the ones we have over there. So yes, I would say that is exactly the model. And, you know, you're only, you hit fatigue when you're right, when you have less new ideas than things that burn out. And that's fatigue, right? When there's less new ideas, whether it's custodial referrals or affiliate marketing or direct marketing or digital marketing, and I think that's where what's exciting is Wealth Enhancement Group. And there was a, a great, a nice piece done by Wealth Management last week that we, we I know, emailed about before the call today and catching up. But just see Wealth Enhancement Group, and they've brought in a number of critical new leaders because they are, I don't tripling down on what they believe they can do with digital and to see what they can do with big data and artificial intelligence. So we're already, I would say, argue, one of the, the sharper firms in these areas through marketing and through the client life cycle, but to us, there's just this great opportunity to take it to a whole nother level that, that, you know, not many firms, if any have done yet. And so it's fun to see wealth enhancement group is, is investing for what does it look like in five years? What does it look like in three years? And what does it look like, you know, in the long term versus what are we just optimizing today? And so this just helps to connect the dots for what you were talking about earlier. And so likewise, that's why it's, it's not just appealing to acquire a firm from WEG's perspective, but to acquire one that has some size and mass in the market, not necessarily because you need them to like do their marketing and get their referrals, although I'm sure that's nice, but just if you're going to then come in and say, okay, we're ready to spend a million dollars in this market because at our current efficiency spend, this is likely to produce $100 million. Well, you, you can't spy a solo advisor with an assistant and then plow in a million dollars of marketing and bring in a hundred million dollars of, of new clients because you're going to crush that poor person in, in new client flow. Like you need, you need multiple advisors and some infrastructure and some team support and the service support and the rest that has to be there so that if you do a material marketing spend and you actually make the rain, they can handle the flow that comes from it. And that's been a key linchpin to our acquisition strategy. I mean, a lot of what Firms join us for many reasons, and, and certainly the operational support in the back office is a big one. But kind of if you think longer term, it's not just about, hey, let us take some of the work off of you locally, whether it's financial planning or just running your business or IT or you know having a great instance of Salesforce or all of these things, portfolio accounting. Let us pull that back 
so that you guys can spend more time. So these wonderful teams that join us all around the country say, hey, yep, we're going to give you more time because both you can go get referrals. We're going to free you up for that. But we're also going to turn on these programs and those are going to keep you really busy. So we're going to re-engineer your P&L to be focused on growth versus running your business. We can efficiently help you run your business. And then we're going to plug into all these different areas to figure out what is the optimal mix for Pittsburgh and what should Pittsburgh look like? So re-engineer your P&L, which, which basically means like, hey, you may have some local infrastructure costs that we're going to save you on. You, you don't need another license of Salesforce. You don't need another license of Orion. You know, you've got some local staff that we can actually do efficiently from the home office in Minneapolis and, and save you on those staffing costs. But we're not doing it because we're just trying to increase the margins of your firm. We're doing that because we're going to take those all those dollars and we're going to redeploy them into the marketing campaign that we know how to run very efficiently and make it work and make growth show up because we've now freed up the cash flow in in your local location to do that. And then we all get bigger as a process. I mean, you go in and it seems like, oh, we have this great client person and she's, you know, one of the smartest people I've ever met, but she's, you know, running our portfolios all day. Okay. Well, you know, we have a, a, a fully scaled investment department internally. How about you just make the allocations that work for your client? You work with the client all day instead of running the portfolios or the portfolio tool behind the scenes and focus on you know serving the clients you have better and 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 working through our programs to find new ones versus this back office. And when we acquire people, by the way, because of our growth rate, there are some people in a local office who say are a, a marketing person. So we have started to have a distributed marketing team. So I mean, we can certainly find something for this marketing person in Pittsburgh to do. We'll figure out what their skill is and I'm sure we need it. So they could be a copywriter or a designer or a digital expert. We're gonna need that. Right, because uh, because again, I I mean, I think I, I think some firms, you know, you hear about acquisitions and you hear about I'm like putting it in air quotes cost synergies, which sometimes is essentially a euphemism for you know we're going to fire your staff because we can do it from our home office cheaper, and you know the the metrics may be the math of that may be true, but it doesn't feel good as the selling firm owner to say you know you're you're going to come at my staff with a scalpel and start carving them out, but. But it's a little bit different, I guess, in in the context like yours, because if the whole point is acquire to map our systematized growth engine onto your local firm, like if there's one problem we're going to have if this works, it's that we're going to start creating lots of clients and you're going to need more capacity to serve them, which basically means more hands on deck. So, you know, the last thing you want is to actually cut down too much staffing out of a local office and then make it grow and not have enough staff to do it. It's It sounds like in your context, it's more your role may shift a little bit because we're we're shifting from some local operations to some distance-based operations so you can focus on clients and growth. But there will be roles, there will be things to do, and we actually have the centralized marketing systems. You just have to actually be able to you know, close the clients and service the growth. Yeah. I mean, through 16 acquisitions, there's been almost zero positions eliminated. Meaning it's not about, yeah, you're, you're re-engineering the PL, you're not slashing the PL. There's a big, there's a big difference. And I mean, we go in and say, you have good people you trust, we're going to need them. And it could mean that they work through the marketing department centrally. They could work in a client service role. They could join our investment team. They could work in your field office. They could turn into a salesperson. For I mean, there's so many opportunities that you know we're we're bringing on great people. So if they already have great people, we're going to need them. I'm just so, you know, I, like I'm just so fascinated though by this framing that 
I mean, I feel like for almost all other firms out there, like mergers and acquisitions usually fall into one of a couple of buckets. Like, hey, you got great profits. I would like to participate in them. So I'm going to buy your profit stream from you. You get a check as the selling exiting owner. I get to buy your profits in the future, right? Just sort of like the classic merger acquisition, get bigger by profits, find chill engineering. We get some that are, hey, we're hoping one plus one equals three, usually still from a profits end. Like you've got op staff, we've got op staff. If we merge together, we don't need that much op staff. So we get cost synergies so we can run a more profitable firm with the better economies of scale by merging together. Then every now and then I feel like you see sort of, I know I'll call them like growth multiplier deals. Like firm has great growth success, has been able to do it well. So someone comes in and 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 buys them, they do a deal to say, hey, you've got this great growth engine. We're going to try to expand it and help you grow further and faster by giving you more resources. And you get some of these growth multiplier deals. I feel like yours is like what you're doing at WEG is very, very different than any of those because even growth multiplier deals I find are usually like the seller has the growth engine and the buyer wants to participate it and fuel it. Yep. And yours is different because the buyer (laughs) has the growth engine and just wants a seller that can participate in that growth process because at the end of the day, particularly in advice, like it doesn't matter how great your centralized marketing is if there's no actual advisor that can do the last mile of advice and make sure the client is happy and well served. Like you still need that last that last piece of the advice delivery process. And so you have a mechanism where the buyer has the growth. They need sellers who can do the servicing and the great advice work, which is just very different than most other acquisitions I see in our industry right now. We often joke that, you know, most of the best advisors aren't for hire. Like you can't go hire them. You can build them. And we certainly do build them internally and have a great development program, you know, as our advisor, but they're not usually for hire. So how do you get the best talent in the industry? Well, you buy them, they merge in, and then you're at, you know, this additive of, of having this talent, this scale in the market is unbelievable. And most of these people that join our firm, you know, have already run. I mean, our, our acquisitions are, you know, from 300 million to a couple billion and, and even potentially larger. These are people who've already run a great practice. They're thinking, okay, do I, I want growth for first of all. So people who are saying, well, you know, I'm looking for retirement or safety. I mean, you know, we may look at those, but that's not back to the <laughs> targeting of marketing. That's not who we're looking for. We're looking for the person who says, Oh, I'm I'm doing really well. I've built a heck of a firm. I'm looking at that next level of of systems growth, of operational growth, of marketing growth, and I really want to go for it. I really want to go for the jugular, and I'm looking for a partner to help me do that. And so, you know, and I'm not done, and my staff's not done, and you know, we're looking to continue on and do more than ever, and I'm looking to do more than ever. So, yeah, we're definitely not looking for the retirement deal as our primary targeting. Of, of the firms that come on. The firms that come on are saying, I, I think I could have built it in 10 years, but with you, I'm going to have it in one. So John, when you put all of this together, like what is the, it's like, what is the breakdown of organic and inorganic growth look like for a firm like yours? So obviously uh, the, the industry loves to do the headlines of the new acquisition. So uh, we, we see the inorganic growth stuff when it when it occurs, but like how much of your growth actually is 
the inorganic acquisitions versus just the organic growth of all these different marketing channels? Well, I think I, you know, what I can share publicly is our organic growth as we finished last year was over 1.5 billion and, you know, substantial amount of new assets coming in. And that does not include anything market related or market increase. So those would be net new assets to the firm. And, and that number is certainly accelerating this year now. Accelerating this year. So like the, despite COVID pandemic challenges, that has not been a slowdown for the growth engines that you guys run. Well, I would certainly say like all firms, we've had to pivot, adjust, and you know, we, we've certainly felt the effects of COVID. So I, it would be, uh, I would love to know the firm that hasn't, but I would say that the firm is still bringing an amazing amount of assets and, and our base is bigger every year. Our geography is bigger. So if you look at, I mean, we've done 11 acquisitions the last 24 months, our, our marketing Programs have grown, our, our our spend has grown, so the the investment is continues to ratchet up. So, yeah, it's it continues to grow, and and you know while maybe a little dent from COVID is still going to be a, a highly impressive year. And on top of that, I think we shared that you know it's it's exciting because uh, I've actually stepped out of the role of the full time CMO, and they've brought in a new a new CMO, and it's something that we've done in partnership with Wag, and so it's just been a, a a really fun time to see the the firm continue to accelerate like this. So what did the marketing channels look like at this point? I mean, like you've talked a lot about direct mail, but I think you had said there's like 30 people in the marketing department segmented out by channel. So like, what are all the different channels that a firm like yours looks at and, and tries and experiments? Like what do, what do you view as marketing channels that you put resources towards? So I'll do a quick laundry list and I'm sure I'll miss them. So I'll miss one or two, but I'll do, my, I'll do my best off the top of my head. So when you think of traditional marketing, we continue to use uh, radio shows, AM radio, and some seminar marketing. Those, those years ago were 70% of our marketing mix, and now it's a, a pretty small percentage. Direct mail has been a workhorse for a number of years and continues to produce quite well for us. The digital investment, and, and digital is such a broad word. So I mean, SEO, paid search, social media marketing, retargeting, all of the different areas and including affiliate marketing through the web is by far our biggest channel and our fastest growing channel and is where we're seeing the most growth. So it overtook direct mail a couple of years ago and is skyrocketing, skyrocketing upwards. And so there's a number of channels under there from online webinars to all the ones I already mentioned. So you've got kind of a hodgepodge of, of things under the digital umbrella. And then we participate in a number of the custodial referral programs. And those are specialized invite only programs where you're brought in by some of the larger custodians, you, you pay a fee, but you are, are helping them with kind of advanced financial planning cases and support for their financial consultants around the country. So when you break it down, I like to think we have about a baker's dozen of individual channels. We're, we're comparing and, and figuring out the profitability and where we should invest our time and resources. I am still struck. And I, I guess, as you've noted, like there is this shift from direct to digital that that you guys are working on but i i i guess i'm i'm sure there's still some people that are listening to this that are that are just thinking like really direct mail still <laughs> really every year so i mean it's the same with seminars and it was the same with newspaper was every year i'm happy it works one more year and you know there is it you know it is it, it continues to produce for us i would say you know we have definitely refined our model you know it might be tougher to start it where, you know, we have a pretty advanced direct marketing approach and direct mail model that's, you know, we've invested in the last 10 plus years. But yeah, I mean, it's, we certainly want to go where media is going. 
That said, we never throw out a working channel, right? So, you know, if if seminars continue to work a- after COVID, you know, I don't know if they will. I'm a little skeptical, but you know, we'll certainly try them again. And if butts and seats continue to work that way, we'll we'll definitely invest in it and and see if it works. But but again, back back to the beginning, like if your strategy is AM radio, I'm nervous, right? Like that's that's <laughs> not that's not where I want my my hey, you know, owner of the firm or PE firm or or whoever holds like yep, we're going to really nail it in AM radio in 10 years. Like that, that wouldn't be a good long-term plan to me. So as you look at this in the digital realm, is this digital replicating direct mail? Like you used to do direct mail to get some information or participate in a seminar. And now you do digital targeting to get some information or participate in a webinar. So like same kind of funnel, same kind of process, I guess, Digital probably even gives you more creepy ways to target hyper focus because Facebook knows incredible things about us. But like same same mechanism just applied in the digital context. Absolutely. So, you know, every digital channel is a little different when you lump them all together. But I mean, from the advanced analytics you can do on search engine marketing and long tail keywords and retargeting and how you're finding those people to email to webinar invites through social media and advertising on Facebook and LinkedIn and all different areas, a lot of embedded content marketing and affiliate marketing. So yeah, there's, it's still, I mean, as, as advanced as digital is, and it is, you know, should be at the top of everyone's list, it's still a little bit the wild, wild west, and it's still moving so fast. And, and again, that's where it's been fun to see Wealth Enhancement Group really invest in the future of where we're going digitally. It's not like anyone's arrived and there's a lot of people doing well with us and <laughs> well with it, including us, but there's, boy, is there continued upside for the firm that gets it exactly right. And are there particular areas that you're finding are the the traction areas for you? Like, hey, good old-fashioned paid search actually works well. SEO seems to be the magic. Like social media is is the channel for you. Are, are you finding within the digital realm particular areas that I guess either are working or are like, Yep, that ain't it. We are not doing that anymore. <laughs> yes, I mean, and we're learning and failing and winning at all of those all the time. So, I mean, there, SEO to me somewhat equates to referrals, right? And we do a lot of brand and awareness marketing that drives our, you know, people to to wealth enhancement group. But you know, you can only drive that in my world so far. Meaning, you know, you can you can expend so many ass or investments there. But when you get into more of the paid side of it, into search engine management and search engine marketing in other areas. Yes, there are still the secrets of how to do it. And we're learning every day. One of our things in our model is we definitely use external agencies. So even though we have 30 people, we want to do advanced analytics and advanced marketing that, you know, the 30 people, no matter how good we are as a group and that that roll up into the marketing team, we want to work with the best agencies in the country and really have that cutting edge, those cutting edge platforms out there. The one that's taken off is affiliate marketing. Affiliate marketing and that can mean people like Smart Asset, and there's a number of competitors to Smart Asset, has become much more popular in the last year. And I'm seeing the models really mature. And affiliate marketing for marketers, many people know, sometimes can have a little bit of a sketchy background, meaning, oh, they're selling gross leads that have been resold 10 times. And why would I buy leads from an affiliate marketer who generate themselves? There's a pretty good group of providers within affiliate marketing right now, within financial services. And so that this is like the Smart assets, smart advisor, Zoe Financial, fee only network, those kinds of groups where you like you 
you pay them to be listed or you pay them per lead that you get. And then you got to chase them down and turn them into business. But you, you're actually finding those really do turn into business. Absolutely. And one of the reasons that they've worked for, I know, a number of, of larger firms is we're already set up to chase, to schedule the appointment, to nurture that person, to make the most out of every lead that comes in. So if you think of a mom and pop advisor, yep, they get the lead. Well, the lead gets called by three people and they don't get back to me. And I, you know, I move on to the next thing because I'm busy. Well, I, we've got an outbound team that's going to work that lead and nurture that lead, you know, as competitively as anyone else. So I do think while we might pay the same per lead as someone else, we're arbitraging the value of that lead by having a very defined chase platform for them and that, you know, a smaller firm may not have. And so I'd encourage anyone who does affiliate marketing is it's, it's definitely a competitive environment and you have to see if you can optimize it. Right. Because as you said, you've got an inside sales team who takes these takes leads as they come in. It's like you have a person or several people whose sole job is when one of those lead inquiries shows up, like you got someone who's on the phone that minute yep. to do a turnaround and reach out to them. Whereas, you know, unfortunately the average advisor is like, well, I had a lot of meetings today. So it was about five hours before I got back to my inbox. And then I actually had to respond to a few client things first. So like I just got back to them the following morning and it's like, yeah, unfortunately, Weg and several others have already communicated with them three times at that point. Exactly. Just because you have the dedicated team to to pursue. So a lot of the the firms that are having success are those that are the best set to optimize. I'm definitely seeing that. And, and the affiliate programs, uh, you know, I made that comment that sometimes affiliate marketing, I they're very high quality in terms of reputation of the firm, in terms of how they're how they're driving them, in terms of what they're doing. So it's been a Definitely within the marketing circle, some people may have an aversion to it. I've seen it in financial services be a really impressive, actually, group of companies. Interesting. One of the things, just to add, is it's a great place to start, but I don't like dependency. Meaning, what if Smart Asset changes their model tomorrow? And we love, we have a great relationship with them. Or what if the referral programs change their model tomorrow? I think everything needs to be in balance, right? That that's where you see a smaller firm where it's, well, I was working with Smart Asset, they changed their model, and now I don't anymore. And it's like, oh, well, you know, that may happen. Hopefully it doesn't. But the, the diversification in the, especially where we love the direct and the digital is we feel like we're calling our own shots to another degree. doesn't mean we won't ignore affiliate or referral programs. It just means that we don't want full dependency. And that's not good for either partner when that happens. So what surprised you the most about trying to build and scale marketing in our industry? The... Uh, it, you know, I didn't see, we really had a couple different phases. So I, I knew when I jumped in 10 years ago, it was, there was a, a wonderful opportunity to do the direct and the digital area. And that's continued to go well and scale and change and evolve. And so that to me was kind of on the roadmap from day one. I would say the, you know, the growth of the, the custodial referral programs around the country has been pretty impressive to me. And that a lot of firms that choose to participate are able to, to are invited to participate, are able to drive really rapid growth with them. And that's definitely been surprising to me. Surprising just because like you didn't expect that as a channel or you didn't think it would work as well as it does or? I didn't expect it to have quite the, the positive scale that it can have. Meaning if you're in a number of markets and you have enough to, to really invest with them, that, that you can really have a wonderful relationship with the different custodians in that area. Investing with them just meaning like having enough staffing on the ground to be able to handle the referrals and follow up on them and build the relationships with the local branches and all the all the stuff that goes with those programs. Yep. It's really to it's really a partnership in those areas. 
And then the last thing I would say is, you know, I, we've, I don't know when the explosion of, of big data, artificial intelligence, digital stops. I mean, we're, again, I referenced a couple of times, Wealth Hanser Group is doing a huge another round of investment to even build this out. And I would argue we're doing pretty well. There's just so much potential there. And then, you know, we've always invested heavily, but it's like you're chasing the golden grail and it's, it's or the holy grail and it's, it's getting better every, every year. And so I, I'm more excited that it's like the ceiling is higher, the roof is higher with digital than, than we ever, you know, than I thought it would ever be. And it seems to never end. Interesting. And, and so for you guys, it's just about you're now in testing phase and iterating phase of, of just seeing what, what actually works and what can we put more dollars into to scale up? Absolutely. And, and finding, you know, every, it seems like every year, two or three new channels pop up within digital to be on top of them and to be an early adopter and to, to really optimize them is, is such a great, it's just fun. It's every year I'm more interested because I mean, no offense, you know, I've, I was doing direct mail 20 years ago and, and I, I have a great appreciation for it, but I wouldn't say that, you know, I wake up every day to do direct mail again. It's kind of what's next, what's new, what's exciting, what's going to change all of our, our models. So what was the low point on the journey for you? You know, there's a, you know, in performance marketing, there's a lot of ups and downs. You know, one of the most interesting ones is, you know, this is going to date us a little bit in, in the geography, but it, there was the polar vortex a number of years ago. Yep. And, and it hit all marketing over the head. It literally, I mean, we had a three-month period where every metric we talked about before, response rates and COSPERS and all these things, was just so incredibly suppressed that I remember thinking, like, wow, like uh, an environmental event can just bring everything down. Is that just because, like, at the end of the day, you do these marketing things to get them to a seminar and, like, no one wanted to leave their house because of the polar vortex? Yep. And again, at the time, we're, we're now a national firm, but we were, were much more concentrated in the Midwest. It was like, yeah, everything just tanked. And I remember, you know, having, you know, having to go to a board meeting where it's like, yep, everything's, you know, 20, 30% low. And that's not a good feeling. And I, I remember a number of the marketing staff that's still there today, but I remember those meetings where we, we were scratching our heads like, is it just the polar vortex or is it something else? Or did we lose our mojo? Or, I mean, you have those moments where you kind of get kicked in the gut and you think, you know, do we still have it? Does it still work? And luckily it came back. But, it, you know, at the time you don't know exactly the cause and effect and you have to analyze it. And I just, I remember that having a quarter, uh, an entire quarter, and, and, you know, you've got a lot of advisors in the country going, hey, I'd love, you, know, you talked about appointments, you know, where are they? You know, and you hate to let them down. They're great. You know, that's a great part of our team. And again, because I guess just that's the interesting distinction for your firm, like the, like this, this centralized home office machine does the marketing and makes the leads. So I, I guess I'm interested in this. So like your team generates inquiries, makes leads as, as I think of it, like makes the phone ring. Obviously we don't do a lot of it by phone anymore, but like makes the phone sure. ring. If the phone rings, there's an inside sales team, I guess, whose job is just to qualify the lead, answer basic questions. And if they're really interested, introduce them to an advisor in their local market. And then the advisor meets with them to actually do like the sales process and convince them to join the firm and become a client. It's well said. And that's really the advisor whose job is not easy, right? So they're going to take a lead of which, you know, 30 to 50% of these will close, but their job is to get them from, 
yep, I got a, you know, I had a, a two emails and a webinar and a embedded ad. And then I looked, read a few of your guides online and downloaded them and talked to this wonderful person in the, in the, uh, your, we call it the new client team or the, the outbound sales center. And here I am. And so then, you know, the advisor takes it from there and they have to get it all the way across the finish line to sign paperwork and they've transferred assets. So that said, the advisor is doing a lot of their own running on referrals and on other areas. So, you know, they, they, with their support, I view them as the pilot on referrals and marketing as the co-pilot. We're giving different materials and journeys and ways we can support them. But on the marketing, which is the vast majority of our new assets, marketing is the pilot, meaning we're the ones who have the biggest variable of, can we get the right people to come see our advisors? Because we have great advisors and, and we know their close rates and we know what they can do. So, while the advisor is doing a lot of the work, the variable is how many good people can we get to come sit down? Right. So, so I guess as I think on this wrong, like the, the advisor still has to understand how to, how to sell, how to sell themselves and the value of the firm, but they don't have to prospect. They don't have to go find people to sell to. They just have to be able to sit across from a qualified lead that marketing has put in front of them and still do the conversation necessary to establish trust and rapport and get the client to see value and be willing to hire the firm and pay for its services. And those are such different strengths, right? right. One strength is a rainmaker and a rainmaker is the one you put them in a room and they own the room and you know, you can't control them because they belong to three different country clubs and three different churches, right? right? Like, I mean, that's a rainmaker. And, th and those people also do very well in our system because they can incrementally drive a lot of that business. But there's a lot of people within our system, they're wonderful closers, but they're not rainmakers. They're not someone who's going to do that hustle. But if you get them in a one-on-one -on -one situation with somebody with a financial planning need, they light up, right? They light up about, oh my gosh, can I help this person? Oh my gosh, is this someone that we can benefit in our relationship and we can you know, give you things you haven't seen before in financial planning? So yes, there's a whole group of our advisors who are you know, and I don't take anything. They are amazing people. And closing is not easy either, but they're just, they're not going to join three churches or synagogues or whatever their faith is. They're good. They're going to, they, they don't need to do that. They're going to take the leads and just push them through the funnel really efficiently. So now that you've gone down this road for, you know, 10 plus years in, in, in the financial service industry, like what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from 10 years ago when you were getting started? Oh, boy, I didn't know anything. So if you think about, I mean, you come in and, and especially, you know, again, I consider myself a little bit more of a marketer than even though I've been in financial services so long. Well, the thing I didn't know as well is I knew when I joined Wealth Enhancement Group that it was a high quality firm with high quality people that cared about its clients, which is true of many firms. I did not at the time understand that being in the RIA space was as conducive to growth and ripe for growth than it happened to be the last decade, right? If you would have said that you know the growth path was this fast and w that these possibilities were there i don't think any of us you know at wealth enhancement group would have said oh yeah yeah we're going to we're going to go from you know 1 billion to 20 billion in the next you know x number of years and so i you know we're still amazed and pleased and feel very fortunate to be in such a, a ripe space for all of us and then the other thing you know the it took us a while to figure out our acquisition model as a firm and that that model that you you succinctly repeated back and that we we discussed it was not, you know, apparent day one. We've tried other things. We tried having individual salespeople in model in different markets and parachuting them in. And we tried, you know, different models for growth. And so it wasn't, you know, while we've ended up here, we tried a lot of things that didn't work and a lot of models that didn't work. And, and we're just thrilled that 
the current model we're on still seems to have a lot of legs, which is, you know, these partnering with high quality firms and then providing them efficiency and growth. I mean, I know that sounds simple, but you know, that's not, has not been easy to execute. And we've definitely learned a lot in that process. And so this particular model of like centralized marketing inside sales to turn, you know, to, to qualify leads and queue them up to an advisor. And then the advisor that doesn't necessarily have to do the prospecting, but still has to do the closing and learn to do the closing. Like that's, that's not a happenstance model for you. That's a, like, we tried a lot of different things and this is the combination we're finding that's working for us. Yes. And it's not that it's the only one that works, but yeah, I mean, when we, we decided to try organic growth in new markets and we hired salespeople and the salespeople did fine, but you're just, you know, starting from scratch, starting de novo, starting, you know, with a one person office or a five, it's just really, it's really hard, you know, and it's a lot of time until you get to scale. And so while we were having success with it, it was like, my gosh, it's going to be 20 years until we're able to really scale these programs and, and hire enough people and get enough people on board. So the, the combo of acquiring like-minded growth-minded financial planning firms, you know, with the organic marketing has really been, you know, the, the model that has taken off for us and has been sustainable and appears to have a lot of legs left, knock on wood. So, so what advice would you give, I guess I would say new or even just smaller advisory firms and, you know, at, at 20 billion under management, smaller is relative that could still be a billion dollar firm that's 120th where you guys are a couple hundred million dollars and down uh, like for a for a smaller firm that doesn't have the depth of team and resources that you guys have like where, what would you tell a a smaller advisory firm to be thinking about or focusing on if they want to they want to start going this direction but obviously they're a long long way from where you are I believe it's, you know, to bring in someone with a marketing mindset and to give them clear boundaries. And as we talked about things like allowables and different programs, it's it's to bring in someone and tell them, here is the measure of success and to give them enough power within the organization to make it happen. Meaning, can they actually work with a salesperson or two to help get them across the finish line? And how do you do it? And again, we started with spreadsheets and whiteboards. So it's not you know, it's it's something we've all built and we've all been there. And so if you can start day one with someone who's empowered, someone who has specific goals and a way to track them. And then, you know, you're going to have to, you know, one out of, I always say one out of three things works in marketing. And actually, I'm pretty happy when one out of three works. So you've got to have enough chances to make sure something clicks, right? So if they come in, they have one idea, they're going to do one thing. Well, it's probably one out of three, it works, if even, right, depending on the the, the knowledge base. So but if you can test enough things and you keep getting one out of three things to work over the long haul, you're going to be in a great spot. And so, you know, investing in that, making sure you're going to do the commitment to it. And the other thing is, you know, can you actually measure it? I can't believe how many firms I talk to where it's, oh, I did that program and oh, I guess I did get 10 clients out of it. Oh, I guess that does look pretty good. Yeah, it actually looks great. Actually, you did a wonderful job there. You should do it again. And And that's where you get back to metrics like... Just start taking how much you spend on things and dividing it by your results. Like that's how you get to cost per lead and cost per appointment and cost per client. Like just 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 start measuring that stuff. Make sure you measure the inflow. Make sure you measure the outcome. You know, divide B into A, and you'll actually start getting a decent handle on what's really working for you. Yeah, and I think to our other point is, you know, firms who understand the lifetime value of a client might be willing to pay more. And if you really look at it of what is it worth over, you know, five years or a 10 years, kind of a standard, you know, metric time to look at things, 
And to back into what do you think it's worth and what you're willing to spend and what your cash flow allows, I think that's the way to really market it. So, you know, if you're going to run a marketing program where you need to break even in, in you know, three months or six months, it's going to be pretty hard. And it would be pretty hard for us when we've been working on it really hard for 10 years, 20 years. And, and I, didn't, I don't think we could meet those metrics. So obviously the big firms, they also, besides being really good marketers, they also really have metrics they understand and are achievable. And so what comes next for you? You know, I, I, you had mentioned and uh, you know, the news had kind of hit the industry trade press just shortly before we were queuing up to record this, that, that you're actually making a transition out of the CMO role at Wealth Enhancement Group after 10 years. So what, what comes next for you now? Well, it's been uh, it's been an interesting time, and Wealth Enhancement Group has been uh, just a wonderful home for me the next ten years. But a few personal and professional things just it told me it was time for some reinvention, and was looking for a change. And it incredibly hard decision because uh, I'm still involved with Wealth Enhancement Group and very fortunate to be consulting and advising them on a number of areas. And uh, at times, it's it's hard to watch from a, a slight distance, even though I'm pretty heavily involved. The, the wonderful work that they're doing because they brought in just an amazing new. Che- chief marketing and digital officer named Utkarsh Patel with just a background that just, it just sings. And, and I've had the chance to support him and work with him and, and uh, great things are in their future. So for me, I identify more as a marketer again than financial services. So I'm looking at some smaller startups in a variety of industries where I can really support and drive their marketing growth. And, and the majority of those are outside of financial services with my continued partnership with Wealth Enhancement Group. But, you know, to find these kind of young burgeoning businesses who have all the marketing opportunity, almost an arbitrage available in marketing, and that's what they're looking for. And so that's, that's what I've been spending my time doing and plan to do going forward. And it's, it's really exciting for me. Very cool. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is, is even just the word success means different things to different people. And so you, you've had a, you know, an, an amazing run at, at Wealth Enhancement Group over the past 10 years, you know, essentially like 20xing roughly the firm from a billion to, to almost 20 billion. But how, how do you define success for yourself at this point? So I actually have created, a, and it's I'm a marketer, so you know you're going to get into cheesy stuff with marketers. I hope you're okay with that. But I actually did a mission statement for myself a year ago, and it was really about using marketing to support causes that I really believe in, and that can mean a lot of different things. And you know, when I worked in the agency world and was doing direct marketing for firms, a lot of the firms I worked for I just adored and and thought that they and these were non there was everything from makeup to LASIK to insurance to financial service. I mean, you name it, we were probably marketing it. But some of the firms were, you know, I was like, I don't really wake up to market this or I don't really believe in it. And it's hard, as I think, as any salesperson or marketer knows, when your heart's not in it, when you're not believing that you're making a difference in someone's life, you know, the passion for sales and marketing goes way down. And so for me, Wealth Enhancement Group has been a wonderful home and continues to be because of the strength of financial planning and helping people's lives and everything that we believe in in our industry. There's a number of nonprofits I'm heavily involved with and a number number of other startups, but success to me means that I'm using my strength, which is marketing and organic marketing, to advance something that I really believe helps people and that fits in alignment with what my values are personally. Well, very cool. I love it. It's it's uh I think there's a fascinating combination that comes when you're I guess when you, when you're marketing and selling something is something you truly actually believe in that that improves the world. You know, I know 
one of the challenges I've always seen for a lot of advisors is is sometimes it's really hard to to market and sell yourself because at the end of the day, like we don't necessarily have our confidence in ourselves that what we're doing is really valuable yet, or maybe we work for a company that we're not necessarily all that proud to be working with and representing, and and it and it kind of pauses us. And one of the biggest breakthroughs I I feel like I see routinely in the advisor community is when someone finally hits that right stride where you know they're confident in their value and they're proud of the the firm that they're working for, whether it's as an employee or they went and hung their own shingle, and and you get all of that in alignment, and and suddenly like the marketing and sales conversations become really easy when you really truly believe that the work you're doing is so positive and has great impact, like. Why would you not want to tell everyone and put as much resources behind it as you could to tell everyone? And we all have those stories of, you know, clients crying and, and you know, in the toughest times in their lives being there for them. And those are the ones that make it worth it, right? That's, that's what we all aspire to. And there's the numbers and the P&L, all the things we talked about. But at the end of the day, to me, that's like, did we help people? And, and I believe our industry is doing great things for people. Well, amen. Well, thank you so much, John, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. I can't thank you enough for having me. And again, I'm a big fan and thank you for as much as you cover marketing because I'm an avid listener as well. So not everyone in industry does. So your interest in marketing helps advance all of us. And thank you for all the marketing guests you have on so frequently. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you, John. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com. <laughs>